Um, all right, so I've got a million things going on in my brain right now. First one is, how many of you guys remember Easter? How long ago was Easter? How far in the past was it? Five weeks? How long? What? Month and a half? Feels like forever ago, yeah? So today is where on Easter we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from his death, that he died on the cross for each one of us. Today is that Sunday where we celebrate Pentecost, which what is Pentecost? What is its celebration? What did God do? He poured out the promised Holy Spirit. And again, if we were the disciples walking along with Jesus in that day, and our Lord, our Master, our Rabbi just died, and all the confusion that was there, even though that Jesus taught them and gave them instruction that this is what the Son of Man came for, this is what the Son of Man is going to do, he is going to uh, be persecuted, he's going to be scourged, he's going to die, and on the third day he's going to rise again. So sitting in the midst of that, and when he rises again, he gives them this command to tarry, to wait in Jerusalem for the promise, for the, the another helper. That Jesus said that I'm not going to leave you abandoned as orphans, but my Father, myself, and the Spirit, we are going to come and we are going to dwell in you for all eternity. This is what we celebrate today. As Caleb's, you know, this, this first song, and again, I, I love this. I say this probably half the Sundays that we gather together. We, I don't coordinate with the worship team. Let the Holy Spirit speak to the worship team and what they want to sing and lead us in. Let, let God direct that. But again, this morning is we're talking about this repetitious chorus. Open the heavens, come living water. All my fountains are in you. You're strong like a river. Your love is running through. All my fountains are in you. All my fountains are in you. Come on and rain down on us. Rain down on us, Lord. Again, this this imagery of water throughout the word of God is always, it's the symbol of God's life, his renewal, his cleansing, his refreshing, his Holy Spirit. Specifically for us as a congregation, all the way back when we first came here, God gave this very specific promise in regards to his reign. So every time I hear uh, this, this crying out, this prayer to God for him to pour out his reign, upon us the imagery it's the pouring out of the holy spirit of his power but not only that the imagery in the old testament is that of a desert in a, in a desert if there is no water there is only death but when there is that water from the lord that water is what enables the nutrients the roots to go down and deep the, for the nutrients to be sucked up into the plants that's uh, the imagery of psalm 1 where you have the tree planted by the streams of living water why because it is going to produce its fruit in its season the tree is going to produce the fruit in which it was created for god is going to produce his fruit in each one of us in regards to why he created us, how he created us, and the time which he created us, not only individually, but corporately as a body. So um, one, we're sitting in Pentecost this morning, so there's some imagery of that. 
Uh, as we end the service today, we're not going to have worship. We're going to take communion together, and we're going to pray together, um, not just in, you know, I have a couple of passages that I want to read through briefly as we enter into prayer in regards to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, but we want to be praying for our community. Um, Gordon, how many people fit in Georgia's football stadium? Anybody know? Does 100,000 people fit in any football stadium in America? Anybody? Huh? Tennessee? 100,000 people can fit in that stadium? So imagine the largest stadium that you can think of and get that visual snapshot in your mind. And again, now have that imagination. Every single person in those seats is dead. That's what's happened in our culture in four months. Over 100,000 people have lost their lives to a plague, to a disease. And we need to be praying for these things and be attentive to these things. In the midst of all of this, we're dealing with racial upheaval once again. Or even in our community, uh, picked up Eli from work and, you know, the rumor mirrors go, going on that, you know, that the protest is going to come up to Avalon and they're going to riot at the Avalon. And sure enough, when we go home... All the businesses that closed at Avalon at 7 o'clock last night in preparation for who knows what. As we talk about a man who was black, six foot six black man who was arrested for whatever reason, has a white cop place his knee on this man's neck for almost nine minutes and he's dead. What is your response to that? So we, can, we, we align with protesting absolutely because that's what gives a voice, but we were talking about this morning, uh, darkness does not cast out darkness. God's light is what casts out darkness. As we sit in the news of our culture, we hear the 1% of the junk that's going on in the culture, and that 1% silences the necessary conversation that ought to be going on in our community. We're going to begin this morning in 1 Corinthians 13, so turn in your Bibles to there. And be, as you make your way there, just announcements in regards to what's going on here. I plan on for the next couple weeks that nothing's going to change. Uh, so next Sunday and June 14th, we'll plan on Sundays being the same. For those of you who are still staying at home, um, there are a few kids here. Um, so you're welcome to bring children. But again, we'll be in the sanctuary. And again, we're practicing social distancing, keeping mindful of all those kinds of things. Um, but for those of you who are fatigued and weary of online virtual stuff, it's great to stand in the gap, but it's nothing like being present for, with one another. Um, again, we invite, and as, as this slowly changes, we will slowly change with wisdom. We still need to pray through and just have wisdom in what's going on in our community specifically. So things began to open up a month ago. What have the repercussions of that been? Good, bad, and different. Um, that will... Uh, give weight to the decisions that we make in the future, but I'm asking you to pray. What do Wednesday nights look like for us? For those that are not comfortable to come to the Bible studies on Wednesday nights. Um, so if we open it up physically here, that automatically now excludes everybody who doesn't want to come physically. So what does that technology look in mixing those things together? Having children's ministry in the back, what does that look to get like as a congregation? 
I mean, I'm ask, we're going we're gonna to end up putting out a questionnaire um, to the body, asking a variety of questions, but service time. What time do we want to start service? What does children's ministry look like? Who wants to raise their hand and serve back in children's ministry? What do those protocols and procedures look like? We'd like we have to walk through all of these things in wisdom, and we need God's mind and his heart on us as we move forward. All right, so those are announcements. So everything's normal this week on Zoom. We have the men's breakfast that will be on Zoom on Saturday, so that's kind of the only change from the normal. Uh, but we are going to begin the very last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. But before we do so, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again, we come running to you boldly to seek you and to seek you alone, Lord. We come running to your throne of grace on which you were seated and enthroned. You are enthroned in our praises and our love and our adoration for you. We are so thankful for you, Lord. We ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us, just like that day of Pentecost that we read in the book of Acts. May you do your work in us as individuals, in us as a gathering in the name of Jesus. Have your way among us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul, in this section, as he's writing this letter, he's correcting some issues that are going on in the Corinthian church. In 12, 13, and 14 in these chapters, he's dealing with spiritual gifts. And in this idea of spiritual gifts, when you look at us as a body, we are all very different different life experiences, different personalities, different understandings, different giftings from God. There is a great amount of diversity in this room. There ought to be a great amount of diversity. But diversity, we rub each other. For some of you who are naturally have the gift of helps, you wonder why everybody just doesn't flood the whole world with help. For those of you who have the gift of administration, like God has just wired you to have all your lists and all your ducks in a row, and he's poured out his Holy Spirit upon you to, to, to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ in, in the area of administration, somebody who is out of order drives you nuts because they think differently than you. They have a different perspective than you. And God says, I, it's the same God the same Lord and the same Holy Spirit that we all believe in, that we are all unified in one body according to who he is in his power, in his grace, in his love. But in our God's incredible creativity, he has created every single one of us as different as our fingerprints. We all have fingerprints. We all have a lot of similarities. But there's distinctions in with each one of us. And those distinctions are a testimony to his beauty and to his glory and to his power, his creativity. But when we gather together, there's supposed to be an order. And that order gets into this. Paul says, we are to earnestly desire. And this is, this is an imperative. It's a command in the Greek. Earnestly desire the best gifts, the greater gifts, the superior gifts. Those things that the Holy Spirit uh, promises. We are to have an earnest want and desire and pursuit of these things. And Paul says, yet I will show you, I show you a more excellent way. And that word in the Greek is where we get hyperbole from. And hyperbole is this, it's, it's an extreme exaggeration. And Paul is in, in 
language rhetoric, but Paul is sitting here saying, I want to show you a way that exceeds exceptionally in every area of life. In verse, uh, chapter 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. We're here this morning because of what's going on in our culture currently. If we don't hear love, if we don't see love, those actions that other people are doing, it's just noise. And then we're also here this morning, not just for what's going on culturally in our current circumstances, but as we turn our attention back to Acts 17 this morning, there are people who are very wise but it's apparent that they don't have love. And again, in all of their wisdom, they end up just becoming noise. Verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, And have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Lots of focus on truth this morning. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, Jesus himself, that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love, chase it, and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries, but he who prophesies speaks edification, building up, and exhortation, and comfort to men. Come here again, just this attention on virtue this morning. So Paul is interacting with some philosophers in Athens. And philosophy, the word means that you are a friend of or a lover of wisdom. Wisdom comes from that which we know. It's, this, it's, it's the application of what we know in a way that is skillful. We would say somebody who is wise is an individual who is an expert in one area or another. So as we look at this, we right now today, Paul tells us that in in every area of life, especially in our relationship with God, but in every area of life, we only know in part. 
So what's going on with COVID? We only know the truth in part. What's going on with this man, George Floyd, who was killed? We only know the truth and the circumstances in part. When Jesus comes, again, this is, this is the end of Paul's uh, message to the Athenians, is that when the man, Jesus, comes who is ordained by God, he will judge the entire world in righteousness. And this is where faith comes from. These things always abide, faith in God. This is a virtue. So as we talk about philosophers, all these different schools of philosophy, they elevate different attributes, different virtues, as this is what's morally good. And another school would say, no, this is morally good. And the word of God tells us, here are the three main virtues. And again, we can go to all, in different areas in the Bible, there's these lists of virtues and there's these lists of vices that are discussed. And the most important virtues that we are, that are communicated to us, this, this foundational one of faith. Faith will always remain. We will always trust God. For all eternity, we are going to trust him and abide and remain in trust in him and who he is, that he is going to carry us forward in his presence, in his light, in his glory for all eternity. Amen? And this word hope, tied to that, hope is, I am confidently assured that this is true. I am persuaded that this is true. I have no doubt that that moment that we step into the presence of God and we know him just as he knows us right now, I hope and have that confident assurance that that will always be. When he comes and gets us, when that trumpet sounds and we meet the Lord in the air, we will be with him forever. I am confidently assured in that. But Paul elevates love above everything. Our God is love. He has created us to be in his image. He died for us because of the image of him in which we lost. And he has called each one of us to him through his son to be reconciled in the foundation of love. We are in him in love. Everything that we think, everything that we meditate on, everything that we speak, everything that we do is to be motivated, compelled by that. To be pursuing it. Again, pursuit is an action. We don't just automatically love each other. We just don't automatically love God. We just don't automatically do things. Pursue it. Hunt love. Persecute Love is what we are encouraged to do. And again, if right now in our culture, the love of God is that which will bring truth to light. If those who are protesting right now, if they protest in love and if they protest for justice and for truth and for righteousness, this culture will hear and it will respond to the light and the love of Jesus Christ. If this culture continues to pursue justice with injustice, all this culture is going to hear is injustice. If you pursue your wife just with harsh words or your kids, if you pursue anything in anyone outside of the motivation of love, you are just going to be noise. 
make clarity. Can you hear this? Can you understand this? Now, turn to Acts 17 and remember the position that Paul is in. He has responded to the vision and calling of God to go to Macedonia in the first place. As he goes to Philippi, that culture is responding to the gospel a little bit, but outlandishly with persecution because their way of life has just been interrupted. So Paul gets beat. They leave that beating, they leave that community and go to Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, again, the Jews are envious and the culture is stirred up. So they stir up a mob and they flee persecution out of that city. And he comes to Berea and they share the gospel briefly. And then the Jews from Thessalonica come down. So he ends up fleeing Berea, fleeing from persecution also. And each one of these communities, the gospel, Jesus Christ being implanted taking up life, taking up residence and human beings in those cultures. And now in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, Paul is in Athens all by himself. And this verse says, now while Paul waited for them, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy, who stayed behind in Berea. He's asked them to come and meet him. So he's there by himself in Athens. It says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Now, snapshot. So this is, this is Paul's first time in Athens. He's a, a, a tourist, so to say. You are used to the community in which you live in. You're used to your home. Everything becomes familiar. You really don't see things with a fresh set of eyes. Paul is walking into Athens with a fresh set of eyes. And as he's walking in this community, motivated by the love of Jesus, knowing that he's there to proclaim the gospel, as he observes this community, what does he see? He sees a city that is filled with and the, the word is, it's swamped with idols. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to that, that whole idolatry aspect in a few minutes. But Paul is provoked. He's irritated. He's concerned with what he sees. He responds to it. So verse 17 says, therefore, so in response to what he's seen, he's reasoning. He's having discourse and dialogue in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. So Paul is motivated by what he sees to have a conversation with other human beings about Jesus. He's in the religious center, in the synagogue, and he's having conversations about what it, what's irritating him, what he's concerned about, what he sees in the culture. He's communicating to them Jesus, the gospel of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and dialoguing and having these conversations. So for us, again, application, as often as we gather together, what, what are you concerned about? What do you see in this world, in your home, in this congregation that's, that's irritating, that's, that's concerning you? And again, we need to be motivated by love in that conversation, not just coming in and running our mouths and complaining about everybody else. But what is it that stirs you up? What is it that you see in this world that concerns you? And we ask that question, we want to ask that question of each other because I want to esteem what God is doing in you. Because what you see is what the Holy Spirit is letting you see. And what you see, usually, he wants you to be praying about, and he wants you to be speaking about, and he wants you to be active about in your life, and in your culture, and in your context. Is there somebody that's just, you know, out in left field and, and full of idols, and you're concerned about them? You have, this, you have the conversation. What does God want you to say to them? 
What is it? How, do you, how do you bridge that conversation with that person? It demands the love of God more than anything, and it demands the wisdom of God in that conversation. This is what Paul is demonstrating while he's in Athens. While he is out in the commercial place, in the marketplace, so he's not just having religious conversations. He's having conversations out there in public, wherever he may find himself, but specifically, this is the Agora, this is the marketplace, this is where people are coming to buy and sell, and this is also in this community where they're coming to discourse and to dialogue. You know, Paul is this traveling preacher. So in verse 18, it says, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Literally, they're, they're hear him and they're discussing, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them, which is, again, the, the conveyance of the gospel, Jesus, and the resurrection. So here, as he is in the marketplace and he is speaking the gospel, he is proclaiming, this is who Jesus is. This is what he did, proclaiming the resurrection. These two different schools of philosophers in this community here. And again, you can, you can sit and go spend the rest of your life studying all the different nuances of the philosophies. But for, in general, the Epicureans, these are individuals who, they don't deny God. Uh, but they don't believe that there is anything after death. And they believe that they, the pursuit of happiness, the virtue that they elevate over anything is that freedom from pain. That freedom... Um, oh, I forgot the other. There's two freedoms that they really focus on. Enough said. Anyways, the, their main focus is there is no uh, life after death. They don't deny God, but they believe that the whole, you know, the universe has just been set into motion. Um, and freedom from pain is like that, that attribute, that virtue that they're elevating above others. The Stoics, they believe in the pantheon, but they, again, they have different virtues that they, um, that they elevate in their idea of God. God is represented by the whole universe. The universe is God, and again, we hear this and, you know, these echoes of this in our own culture where the whole universe is God. When you die, the body is dead forever. There is no resurrection, but the soul goes and becomes one with the whole universe. This is where the Stoics are sitting. So, again, there's, as Paul is communicating, these different schools of thinkers, these different individuals that we would be considered friends and lovers of wisdom, these people who would be considered experts in regards to life, in regards to what brings about happiness, in regards to why we're here, where, where we came from, where we're going. These individuals are to be, you know, they're, they're uplifted in their schools of thought as experts in their community. And they hear Paul. Some of them are mocking him. What is this babbler? Literally, what does this seed picker want to say? And again, here's this uneducated person. He's not from our schools. Uh, you know, they're, they're mocking him. Others, wait a minute, he's, he's proclaiming some kind of foreign, strange God. He's preaching to them about Jesus and the resurrection. So they take him and they bring him to the Areopagus there in verse 19 saying, may we know what this new doctrine, this fresh, recent teaching is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things, some surprising things to our ears. 
Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. How did, how did these things come to exist? Where did your teaching come from? What is this philosophy? Who is this God you're preaching? They're, they're asking all these questions in their curiosity. But Paul or sorry, Luke here in verse 21 points out, all the Athenians and the foreigners who dwelt there, they spent their time, their spare time in nothing else but to either tell or hear some new thing. So this is what they geek out on in the culture. They love the tidbits of news. And again, we can sit in this today. Our culture loves news. We love the little tidbits of news. We love the little bit of information. And most of us, we just love the little bit and we could care less about the depth and the knowledge and the truth behind what's going on. We just get the little flash of information and that's enough. Next, flash of information, that's enough. Next, and it's this constant cycle of news and information. For us, we get it from all different sources. For these, in, the, in, the, in this culture at this time, new people are coming into the community. There's a new guy. What's this new guy saying? Let's Let's hear them. This is their curiosity. What news do you bring? What foreign God are you preaching? Now, as we step into verse 22, I want to pause here and just give you um, how I sit in this and just to give you a painted scene of what's going on. Um, I've only been to Israel and to Greece once, but on this trip, when we went, we had a red-eye flight where we landed in Athens first. So this was before I went to Israel we landed in Athens, and we had a day fully in Athens. So this is where we went to the Parthenon, which is where Paul is standing as he is delivering this message. He is standing on Mars Hill. So um, if, you, if you get on Google, it's great to see just images of Athens. It's, it's this huge valley that is surrounded by these mountains, hills, and all you can see is the white stone of the buildings. But, I mean, you can see for miles. So, but it has these different outcroppings of land that have cropped up, these acropolises. So on this major acropolis is where you have the famous Parthenon that's on top of it. And not only that temple, but there's multiple temples to all different kinds of gods on this outcropping. So as Paul is speaking, behind him is all of this pantheon of foreign gods and idolatry behind him. And he's standing on this other outcropping that's called this Areopagus. It's Mars Hill. It's a, it's a hill dedicated to the god of Mars, but it's this place where they come and they have these discussions and dialogues. Why? Because it's the foot of their religious center. And at the same time, down below them, it's overlooking the marketplace. You can see the Agora where Paul is preaching. You can see temple after temple that it's down here. And you have a commanding view of all of Athens. So this is the environment. This is the scene in which Paul is communicating. Now, I bring up my trip because this is the imagery that I had as I'm sitting in, in Athens and seeing all this for the first time and experiencing all these historical sites. And then you sit in the biblical text and you get a little bit of visual illustration of what's going on. But for us, our trip, we, we got to a hotel that night. We took another red-eye plane to Israel. And we spent the next week plus in Israel. And one of the outstanding visual representations that you have in Israel is that there's no idolatry. 
Yes, you sit in the, in the Bible and you can sit in the Canaanites and the different religions and cultures were there and how they influenced the Jews. And when the Jews took up that idolatry, you see those kind of artifacts and that kind of archaeology. When you're in Megiddo, uh, you can see there's this huge round platform. On that platform, they sacrificed children to their gods. And you have that visual representation of the evil that was going there. But when you look at the religion of the Jews, when you look at them worshiping the true and living God, it is your attention, you see it everywhere that the idols that are there, they are all foreign and they have nothing to do with the heart of God and who he called his children to be. So when you go from scene to scene, when you go from archaeology place to archaeology place, you see the structures and that kind of stuff. But anything that's dealing with a God, it's, it's, it's a foreign God. But then we go back and we go back into Greece. So we did Israel first and then we went to Greece. And it was, we started up in Philippi and we're doing the, the footsteps through this, this passage in Acts. You start in the north in Philippi, you go down to Thessalonica, you go to a church there, there's really not that much idolatry. You stop in Berea, there's nothing there but a memorial or whatever. But you get back into Athens and it is flooded with idolatry. And again, it is very hard to convey because when you sit in a history book or you sit in, you know, Discovery Channel or History Channel, everything that is communicated to you is filtered through a PG lens. When you go and you see the idolatry, it is pornographic, it is perverse, and it is everywhere. Every single museum that you go into, all the paintings, all the structure, all the, the carvings, Athens and Corinth, it was, um, I personally have zero desire to ever go do a Footsteps of Paul trip through Greece again. Because it's, it's just, I didn't, it wasn't, it was good to experience, it was good to see, but there's nothing in me that longs to go back there. I long to go back to Israel because again, the, 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 the stories and the accounts that we read, it just flows off the page and we love it. So this is the scene that Paul is sitting in. Paul is a believer and a worshiper of the true and living God his entire life. He has responded to who Jesus is and he has been radically changed by the love of Christ. And we watch the love of Christ flow out of him and scene after scene after scene. And here he finds himself in a culture that is flooded with idolatry that we could hold up the mirror to. And it reflects our own culture in which we live. Verse 22, so Paul stands in the midst of this scene of the Areopagus and says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. You fear the gods. For as I was passing through and considering carefully the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. A little history here. This is um, the story that we have in regards to this unknown God is that there was a plague in Athens about 600 years before Paul was there. Um, they send all these sheep into the community and wherever the sheep lies down, they sacrifice the animal. So when it was uh, in front of one of their idols, they sacrificed it to that idol. And if a lamb lied down uh, where there was no idol, they erected this monument. We're sacrificing this animal to the unknown God so this, this plague will go away. 
And this is the common ground that Paul is, is communicating to them. And again, if you sit in any commentary and just the reality, you can sit in earlier messages where he is preaching to those who are aware of the you know, Jewish religion and the Old Testament and who God is. You can see that conversation and the argument here. There's, not, there's no quoting of the Old Testament, but this is the common ground. Here's, a, here's a, an inscription that says to the unknown, the agnostic God, the unknowable and unknown God. And this is the common ground. Therefore, the one who you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell, and again, the imagery, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped, nor is he served or ministered to with men's hands as though he needed anything. It's nothing that we can give or add to God. Since, why? Because he is the one who gives to all. He is the giver. He gives to all life, the breath, and all things. He is made from one blood. Literally, it's a, he's made from one, from Adam. Every nation, every ethnicity of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined, he set limits to their ordered, their pre-appointed, their arranged times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that the purpose, so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, and this is, he's quoting a couple of places here out of, out of, uh, Greek philosophers, in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something to be shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance, these times of the want of knowledge, God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance, he has given faith of all of this, of this to all by raising him from the dead. And that does it for him. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. While others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysus, the Areopagite, say that five times. Um, A woman named Damaris and others with them. So again, just the, the overall scene here. We've already set up what's going on. The Athenians, they're, they're, they're interested in hearing this new thing. In their wisdom, 
in their understanding of the world's system, how they have everything already figured out according to what they've heard, what they've been taught, what makes sense to them. That's how they filter down into their individual schools. We all find the same, same thing, even within Christianity. Do we not find our different schools of thought? This is our understanding. This is how I think. This is how I interpret. This idea of new, though, I learned. I heard this a long time ago. I think I'm pretty sure I heard it from John Corson, which I'm sure quoted it from somebody else. If it's new, it's not true, and if it's true, it's not new. Now that's not in line to scientific uh, discoveries and all those kinds of things. But when it comes to God, if it's new, it's not true. In our culture, we sit in this, this uh, idea of everybody having itching ears. People get bored with Jesus. They get bored with the gospel. They get bored with the basics. They get bored with life. They get bored with monotony. Give me something new. Give me something fresh. Our, we live in this culture with itching ears. And then somebody comes and says, this doctrine or that doctrine and often there's a desire to oh that there's there's something special there there's something unique there there's something that nobody else knows but just just us it's a very dangerous heart to have again the Bereans were the ones that took that information and took it to the word of God is this true test the prophecies test the spirits to see whether these things are true or not if it's new it is not true you are not the first one to discover the grandeur and the glory of Jesus. Praise God. But that information may be new to us, right? Our knowledge is growing in him, ought to be growing in him, and, and he's unveiling his mysteries. If it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. But as he's communicating to these individuals, he's communicating to wise men, people who already have their systematic theology in order. And this is one of those things where we need to have this open heart and open mind with God because what stands out as Paul communicates to them wise truth, what do these individuals do with it? They mock it. They reject it. It's something that is outside of what they believe that they know to be true. And this is in a big religious context as we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of what the word of God proclaims. But this can be in the simplest things of life. If I have this circumstance and I have this person figured out, so even when new and true and wise information comes to my life, I reject it because I already know what's true. I already have my perspective. I already have all this worked out. If you made me president, I would have all of this fixed in a couple of weeks. Do any of you have that thought? Yes, no. <laughs> I do. Man, again, it's the best thoughts in the shower. You just sit there and think and think and think. Man, if they just do this and this and this, it'll all be good. Um, that's my pride and my arrogance. But again, just in application for us, here this information is coming to them and they reject it. And part of the information that they reject is that there is a sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth. That violates their system of thought. And as Paul is communicating to them, he says, God has 
predetermined your individual and your cultural time and place and boundaries. And the reason that God has done this since he created Adam and he has placed human beings and cultures in their place, in their time, is for a singular purpose. And that is the purpose that every single person would grope for and seek for God. And the idea of groping in the language, it is a blind man trying to feel their way through life. And they find something and they touch it and they... They examine it and it becomes more and more familiar. That's this idea with groping. That's this idea with we are to pursue love because you and I, we only see and we only know a little bit. And I confess to God, God, I don't have a clue what I need to do in this circumstance, in this day. What do you have for me today, Lord? Let your will be performed. Give me your knowledge. Don't let me reject your knowledge because you have orchestrated my circumstances today so that I would seek you and so that I would pursue you. Whether those circumstances are good or whether those circumstances are bad, God has ordained that moment, that day, your life, your path, so that you would know him in his grand plan. And then, again, as Paul is communicating all of this, they, they stumble, they falter at this whole idea of the resurrection from the dead, which again is what is foundational to why we even believe what we believe and why we are gathered here this morning, because that man, Jesus, who is ordained to be the judge, the righteous judge of all humanity of all time, is the man who was sent from God, who died, who was buried, and he rose again from the dead. He ascended and he's coming back and we bend our knee and our mind and our will to that in love. Side note, is we never hear anything about a church in Athens and the rest of the Bible. We have these two individuals that are mentioned by name and some others with them. And we don't know why. Some people are critical of, you know, well, Paul didn't, uh, he didn't preach the gospel there. He didn't preach only the cross. And once he gets down into Corinth, you know, the message shifts and change. And that's, that's not true at all. But there was something about the wisdom, the, their idolatry, and their philosophical system, their thought processes in their culture in Athens that restricted them from receiving the gospel. Because without faith... It's impossible. With faith, an entire, an entire culture can be transformed. And that's what we want to pray about this morning. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to dismiss everybody online. We are, uh, uh, want to encourage you to, to pray. We are going to specifically pray for what's going on in our culture this morning. Um, but as I'm going to read a couple of verses, so everybody come up and grab communion. Come from this side so that we can keep our social distancing in order. But come from this side, grab your communion cup. Ink the communion cup. The top has the wafer on it. In the container is the grape juice, clearly. If you need the gluten-free option, that is in the other little baggie. So come on up, get communion, and hold on to it. We are going to take communion together. While you were coming up... And grabbing that, I want to read a couple, well, one passage about Pentecost and another in regards to the Holy Spirit responding to prayer, which is what we want to ask God to do as we pray 
this morning. In Acts chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they, being believers in Jesus, were all with one accord in one place, just like we are this morning. And suddenly there came a sound, a noise from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It began to speak with other tongues as the, as the Spirit gave them utterance. In chapter 4, the church is gathered together. They're talking about, to God about the persecution that is going on in their lives. They say, truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness that we may speak your word. And you, Lord, stretch out your hand to heal. Stretch out your hand that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And God's response, it says, and when they had prayed, the place where they had, had assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness.